On this episode of China Unscripted, China is building a military base on the doorstep of Australia and New Zealand. China's new front line is drawn right through the Pacific. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesha. And joining us once again is Cleo Pascal. This time to talk about the Pacific. She's a Nixon resident senior fellow for the Indo-Pacific at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. She's on the Global Counterterrorism Council. Thanks for joining us again, Cleo. Very, very good to be back. I, you know, I had to very quickly change clothes and 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 change my backdrop so people would think we aren't just continuing the last conversation. But uh, hopefully, it'll work. That's ridiculous. It's been at least like two or three weeks yeah. since we had you on. <laughs> exactly. But that was a great interview. I recommend everyone check it out. But uh, we didn't get to talk about uh, your other big area of expertise, which is uh, the Pacific, Pacific Island nations, and particularly uh, China's interest there. Uh, and, you know, I think a lot of Americans don't really think about the Pacific Island nations all that much, uh, which is unfortunate because China sure is. And the latest thing we've seen is this security pact signed between China and the Solomon Islands. So why is that significant? So what's worth noting is actually the U.S. Um, is a Pacific Island nation. So Guam is part of the U.S., ter- U.S. territory, U.S. citizens. Uh, so is Marianas, the, you know, there's American Samoa. There, this, this is not, uh, I mean, Hawaii, obviously, is part of the U.S. and one of the biggest Pacific islands. Um, so it's it's first of all as a starting point i think getting that into into your psychology is is very helpful the us uh and its citizens are an integral part of the pacific islands and uh have fought and died alongside uh partners in the region and it, it is we tend to because most of the media and political structures of the U.S. are on the East Coast for historical reasons. I think there isn't as much awareness of how much of a Pacific country uh, the U.S. is. And so... So what you're saying is the Pacific has been part of America's territory since ancient times. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so you can find uh, McDonald's wrappers on the beaches of, uh, of Saipan. That oh, that's, that's beautiful. That makes me feel so patriotic. That's right. At least 100 and 50,000-year-old McDonald rapper, so it shows you how deep the, uh, the relationship is. Um, but yeah, so, 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 so first of all, just before the conversation starts, kind of shift your whole mental map, oh, about 10,000 miles to the West. And as, as Americans, this is, this is part of you and you are part of it. And that's been a problem for expansionist Asian powers, uh, ever since the, the 19th century and beyond. So um, if you look at some of the countries that we're going to talk about, uh, first you had, first they were colonized by Spain and then Spain lost them to Germany and Germany lost them to Japan and then Japan lost them to the US. And so they, they know a lot about geopolitical upheaval and the, and the people of the countries are extremely knowledgeable about it. This, this is family history to them. Um, but now, now it's met in, in many cases, they have these special relationships with the U S so they know enormous amount about the, the warp and weft of geopolitics and they have these ties to the U S and in some cases are U S citizens. Um, so that's, you're, you're there, that's embedded. They know it, they feel it. 
And countries like Japan during World War II, if they want to be able to expand outside of um, outside of their immediate sphere, they need to get through these other zones of uh, engagement. So that would be, uh, at, at that time, there's a lot of British and a lot of French, but now it's American. And this goes back to the first island chain stuff. So as you can see from this map, you've got the first island chain that goes down from Japan through uh, Taiwan. We don't have that kind of budget. <laughs> through the Philippines. And well, I'm, I'm doing it for you here. Uh, so this is, this is China. And then you've got this chain of islands that goes off the, court, off the coast. And to get the PLA Navy off the coast, uh, it has to break out of those islands. So that's why they want to take Taiwan. And if they can do that, they can project power. But in order to be able to do that, they also need enough control in the Pacific Islands to cover that flank and ideally to leapfrog from there and project power from the Pacific Islands. So this is kind of the, the points of view. This is the points of view of China to understand why this region is actually imperative for them. If they're going to make the PLA Navy functional, they need control, operational control in the Pacific Islands. They need that that uh, aerial denial component needs to be across the board. So that's where you get this bump up against uh, the Americans that are in the region, others that are in the region, um, Pacific Islanders, and China's expansionist policies. So when people kind of try to frame it as, oh, this is just China versus the U.S., this is this is China. This is an expansionist China trying to expand its sphere of influence um, in a way that is very different from the way that uh, at least the U.S. did it, and actually much more akin to the way European powers did it before. Do you mean like kind of a colonial oppressive uh, domination of the region? Yeah. And, and very much so because you asked about the Solomon Islands. So there was this, this agreement that came out. I'm sorry about all the background. It's an area that um, we don't talk about enough. Uh, so a lot of little stepping stones need to be put in place as you build your logical argument, um, hopefully logical. Um, so this agreement, which was leaked by very concerned people within the Solomon Islands system is very similar actually to what you'd have seen from like a British Tonga treaty in the early 19th century. It, um, it has all of the pro forma words that, you know, all of this is only justified if the government of the Solomon Islands lets us come in. But by the government of the Solomon Islands, what they basically mean are their proxies. A very small group of people are pro Chinese in, in the Solomon. So, in particular, the Prime Minister, uh, Sogavari. Um, and the deal, among other things, which shows you how 19th century it is, says China would have the right to go in and protect its people and its major projects. Um, and a part of that also, this is very much in the, in the 19th century treaties, is the citizens of the colonial country have a different set of rules for operating in that country than the locals do. So, you know, you would be you know, a, a Chinese breaking the law in the Solomons, I would expect down the line, if this per continues the way it is, wouldn't necessarily be tried in the Solomons. They might be tried uh, back in China if they're tried at all. So it's a it's a way of saying we are the uh, we are the colonial controllers of your economy and it's backed up with military might and intelligence and all those other things that go along with it. It's a very, very different type of relationship than you'd see um, 
however imperfect, uh, with some of the other Western or Japanese or Indian partners in the region, for example. Well, I can see this potentially going really badly. A kind of, um, you know, the Spanish-American war scenario or, yeah, just kind of anything where where the there's this disconnect between the people who live there and their ability to have any influence on the most important things that are happening in their country. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, so it's very useful to go back to those historical parallels. Um, because the problem is what it's doing to the people. And the answer is giving the people, uh, the, the tools they need to defend themselves. So in the case of the Solomons, um, the trajectory is very much, uh, the prime minister Sogavari is not popular. The agreement with China is not popular, um, and a change of government, there's an election, free and fair election, he'd very probably lose, in which case a new government would come in that might abrogate the security deal, but also switch recognition back to Taiwan. And there's an election due in 2023. This would be a huge loss of face for uh, Xi Jinping. This is uh, because he he's he would he would lose a country. Um and it would give his domestic uh, competitors, political competitors, some leverage. So the stakes are actually very high, both for Prime Minister Sogavari, who is quite corrupt. And if he loses an election, there could be investigations into his corruption. And for China, because it affects the credibility of their engagement and their leadership. So in that context, having free and fair elections could be an existential threat to both of them which means it's actually to their advantage to do something like create a security situation that uh, re-triggers a civil war, and they had a civil war in the past, or, or create such a domestic fraught situation that it can justify the deployment of PLA peacekeepers uh, to go in and pacify, for example, the, the region of Malaita province. Uh, and you've, you've interviewed the premier of Malaita, Daniel Sudani. Those people on the ground who are uh, concerned about CCP engagement are, are terrified. They see this happening and they know this is the trajectory that for Sogavari and the CCP, creating a violent domestic situation helps their position. And, uh, you know, killing or, or arresting opposition leaders and then having those opposition leaders, you know, riot uh, at the injustice of it helps them. Then they can say the, situ the situation is out of control. We need these Chinese peacekeepers. The Chinese uh, sectors are being attacked um, and we're going to hold off on the election for a year or two. And in that time, they can, who knows, use political warfare to groom up a, another section of the population or whatever. So that is a, that is a, a very, uh, as you were describing, Matt, you know, sort of a kind of almost 19th century divide and conquer and then rule type situation. Um and the antidote to that is democracy, transparency, accountability, rule of law, supporting those mechanisms within the country where the population doesn't get marginalized, where people like Daniel Sudani are, um, are helped to spread democracy in their region, which is something he wants to do, educate people about democracy, but also that corruption investigations get started into some of this leadership. So, you know, People around Prime Minister Sogavari have 
real estate in Australia. You don't have to do the investigation necessarily in Solomon's. You can do disproportionate asset investigations in places like Australia and make the cost of those around Sogavari um, go up for complicity in this kind of CCP takeover of a key piece of strategic um, uh, positioning that is greatly detrimental to the people of their country. You know, when you started talking about using the unrest in a way to cement their power over the Solomons, I had this Hong Kong flashback, Hmm. Uh, which, I mean, Hong Kong is in a different situation because its government was directly controlled by the Chinese Communist Party um, in the way that the Solomons is, you know, not a place where CCP officials can come in and be like, all right, now we're changing your laws as of right now. But um, yeah, that whole thing reminded me of, oh, you know, we're going to use the excuse that there's unrest to, you know, bring people in to make punishments harsher to um, quash the opposition. Yeah. And this this is a follow up to sort of what we were discussing last time about how this uh, CCP political warfare machine might take a legitimate grievance and then expand it and then give the wrong solution. So the next step to that is you create, you know, you take that grievance, you use it to create division. And then if you can't gain control through political warfare, then you can shift it to kinetic. You can, you can create such disruption that you end up with a civil war. And then the country becomes the leadership of the country gets isolated from the West, which is what we're seeing in other locations as well. And then their only option is to turn to China. So it again, it's that trajectory leads much more directly to more uh, Chinese vassal states where the leadership has only has the option of dealing with China. And again, this is really about the leadership. And very often it's about a very elite capture in a very small part of the leadership. It, you know, there's 90 percent of the population that doesn't feel like this. And there are some very brave leaders who, in the case of Daniel Sudani, literally willing to die rather than take Chinese money. He had uh, medical, he needed some medical care. Um, he didn't want to let CCP companies operate in his province for a very interesting reason in part, but, but more than half of the reason was because, as, as they said in their Aoki 2019 Aoki communique, because China is systemically atheist and they believe in freedom of religion, and they're devout Christians, and they don't want companies coming from a system that is antithetical to people of faith uh, to do business with. So um, because he has that level of personal faith, uh, he didn't want any any CCP businesses in the, in the province. And when he got sick and needed an MRI, uh, the central government wouldn't help him get out of the country for treatment at the behest of the CCP because of this expansion of the social credit system, where unless you support the CCP, we're going to let you die. Um, And they offered him money for treatment and he refused it. So he's literally willing to die rather than take CCP money. There are people like that all across the world. And of course, in China uh, and in the Pacific. So when we talk about the Solomons signed this deal, there are way more uh, people of strong moral character who won't fall for the money in a place like the Solomons or around the world 
than you might think. And those are the ones that we should be identifying with and um, giving the space to, to do what they do with their people and to lead their people down that path rather than prop up these corrupt guys who might we might think are easy to deal with in the short term, but if they say yes to us, then they'll say yes to anybody because the reason they're doing it is much more transactional and China can always outbid you anyway. Well, so if there is there is widespread popular, uh, what's the opposite of support? Opposition. Opposition to China uh, within the Solomon Islands. And, and you're sort of saying that in, in order for these voices to be heard, there needs to be you know, investigations, free and fair elections. How can that be achieved? What with China's influence there already what it is? Uh, you know, the United States has not really been a player in the Solomon Islands Although for decades. We are apparently op- reopening a embassy there. But is that too little too late? How can how can these democratic institutions actually function in the Solomon Islands? How can these people get their voices heard? So- Ideally, their partners, including the U.S. and Australia, New Zealand, Japan, India, you know, EU, everybody else, would focus on on actually helping them with things like a free press and um, again transparency, accountability, democracy. These are all they're they're not these aren't I- ideals. These are processes, right? So you know you can help put these things in place. You know, for example, in, in the case of um, the Solomons, we know Sogavari wants to postpone the election in 20, 2023. And one reason he's been using is we're going to they're going to be hosting the South Pacific Games. And I uh, think, oh, it's too much for us to handle the South Pacific Games and this. And it may be that that and and leadership on this comes from the islands that some of the other Pacific Island countries say, because of COVID or this or that, you know, we, we're not going to be attending the, the games this year. And that, and that would be very much more the Pacific way of doing things. You don't make a statement about, you know, we don't want to support Sogavari, but they, with, they, they withhold consent for being used as an excuse to, to abrogate democracy. Um, and those once those sort of things start to happen in conjunction with uh, what you're seeing, for example, coming out of Australia, which is more coverage with leaked documents and, and hard data um, and ideally some investigations. Uh, and uh, I mean, it's just kind of endless little pieces that can be put together to help n- nurture uh, what is already growing out of their soil, which is a desire for human security based on uh, all of these things, democracy, transparency, accountability, rule of law, all that sort of stuff. So there's, it, it depends on the specific circumstances and the specific needs, but it, it, it's the guiding principle has to be, you listen to what the leaders are telling you and pay very close attention to what they're asking for. The, the leaders of the Solomon Islands, like, Peter Kennelaria Jr. and uh, the leader of the opposition, Matthew Whale and, and Daniel Sudani, have been saying for years now, China is a real problem for us and we want the implement- implementation of the Townsville Peace Agreement. We want coverage. We want help with this corruption stuff, just very basic things. But 
and they've gone to the high commissions. This is there. There was a document that came out just just recently, uh, which backed up a, a claim that was made by the leader of the opposition that he told the Australians in August that there was a security deal on the books, and the, and the, he went to the Australian High Commissioner. He told them, and at that point, that should have become news. But the media wasn't talking to the leader of the opposition. The um, Apparently, it wasn't getting outside of Canberra. Like, the information is there. But it's this old St. Augustine thing, right? You Truth is a lion. You, you don't have to defend it. Once you let it free, it'll defend itself. Um, and this is, this is very much the situation there. And just quickly, you know, he, he, the leader of the opposition has been looking for ways to communicate directly with the outside world, but nobody's, nobody's been interviewing them. Nobody's been talking. It, it just started this week or two that people have actually in the West in the major media in the West been talking to the people who aren't so Gavari, who are leaders in the Solomons to try to find out what they want. So it, it doesn't take much. What, but it seems like the very little it would take is like one thing that struck me reading the news stories about that deal that the Solomons was signing with China is there was maybe it was an Australian media. I forget what media was that was reporting that as Sogavari was talking to parliament and defending this deal that he was making with China, parliament was being guarded by Australian New Zealand peacekeepers. Right. So actually, that not. So those are two different. You're you're right, but sort of. So what happened was at the original parliamentary demonstration in November of last year, um, uh, there was it was the opening of parliament. There were demonstrations against Sugavari and the corruption and the pro PRC policies. Um, the demonstrators were peaceful, but then the police fired tear gas into the crowd. They rioted. And what we're hearing now is it seems like actually the crowd was sort of directed towards Chinatown. And there was the footage that we've all seen of uh, most of Chinatown, except for, I think, one building that had Taiwanese flags <clears throat> getting burnt down and looted. Because then you get this, you know, there's a lot of youth unemployment. And, and so there was a lot of opportunistic looting at that time. And that was that was when uh, Sogavari was on the cusp of being asked to resign. Um, and then he was saved by an Australian intervention. Then the, the Australians said, oh, you know, there's this uh, security situation and the government of the Solomons, which means Sogavari, have asked us to come and intervene. And so they uh, deployed. And that gave Sogavari the excuse to tell the ministers who are about to abandon him, look, I'm back not just by China, but by Australia. Do you really want to abandon me? And so in November, Sogavari was going to fall, but he was saved by this Australian intervention. Now, what you're talking about is uh, Parliament resat after that re very recently, and Parliament was guarded by troops from Papua New Guinea. Now, this is this is a whole other dynamic because Papua New Guinea is the country that's right, right next to uh, Solomon's and Papua New Guinea is a very large complex country. Papua New Guinea has a population of oh, around 9 million people. 
it's larger in population and in size than New Zealand. And it has uh, a lot of resources and it has a complex relationship with Indonesia uh, because of the West Papua situation. So once you get, once you're starting to deal with Papua New Guinea, which also has a military, you're dealing with a whole other type of country. And there are kinship links between PNG and parts of the Solomons, including Sogavari. So those PNG troops that that came in linked to, to this parliamentary thing uh, are considered by many in the country as being heavies with links to Sogavari, um, who could be used almost as shock troops if you get into a civil war type situation. So it was bad, as you're describing, but it was actually even worse than you might think it is. So do you think that, you know, now that China might essentially have a military base on the doorstep of Australia and New Zealand, do you think the West is kind of realizing like, oh, this is something we should be paying attention to? Yes, the level of interest has um, skyrocketed. Um, and, and of course, th there will be pushback to say, oh, you know, there's, in fact, Sogavari said oh, it won't be a military base or whatever, but you, you need to remember the CCP civil military fusion construct, which is that it, it may or may not be an overt base, although we've now had another document leak, uh, again, just a few days ago, which came out, which was from 2020, which was between a Chinese state-owned enterprise construction firm, which talked about bidding for building a base. I mean, the words military were in there and they, you know, it's one part, it was crossed out, but another, you can still see it. Um, so this has clearly been something that has been contemplated since the switch in 2019. Um, so yes, there's a, there's a lot more interest globally. My concern is that, you know, if somebody, you know, stands right right in front of you and says, I'm going to punch you. Um, it, your reaction is to try to prepare to punch back. But that's actually not helpful for the people of the Solomons or really the best way of getting out of this. So the securitization of the construct by, the, by China, I, would not, I don't think it should be matched by the Australians saying, well, we'll send in our troops. Because you send in Australian troops to the people of the Solomons, you know, the people of the Solomons aren't the enemy of, of Australia, or they shouldn't be. So why are you sending in more security personnel and securitizing it? You should delegitimize any securitization through some of these other things we're talking about, the you know, investigations and the democratization process and the elections. And the goal should be to desecuritize. And we have a blueprint for it. At the end of the last uh, civil war, at the end of the 90s, the provincial governments of Malaita and Guadalcanal and the central government, which at the time was also headed by Sugavari and the militias, they all signed a, a peace agreement. And a big component to the peace agreement was devolution of power. And that peace agreement is sitting with the with the UN at the UNSC. And during the over a decade that uh, Australian led peacekeepers were in the Solomons, they never implemented that part four. But that part four is the way forward. It has buy-in from 
everybody, including the government of the day, which was led by Sugavari. So it has legitimacy. And they've requested, Sudani has requested the UN come, come and investigate whether it's been properly implemented. And there are a whole bunch of different mechanisms that could be brought to bear, including other regional leaders like regional partnerships with Fiji or with President Panuelo from FSM to guide that process, which would have much more cultural legitimacy than Australian troops coming in and standing up in front of the Chinese embassy and saying, stop it or we'll punch you back. Well, I almost wonder, like, with this security pact, is it too late? Because part of the agreement is that, you know, China has to defend Chinese citizens operating in the Solomon Islands. And China has been building up a huge amount of infrastructure. Chinese companies are very active there, taking jobs from local people. Wouldn't any kind of uh, threat to their interest there under the security agreement give the Chinese Communist Party, you know, legal grounds for pushing back, putting its own troops there? The that under the under the agreement, and if the final agreement looks like the draft agreement, because we haven't actually seen the final final agreement, which was initialed but not yet officially signed, uh, the request has to come from the government of the Solomon Islands. So you change the government of the Solomon Islands; it's not an issue. If you change to a different central, if there's an election and Sogavari loses, and the people who come in have no interest in the security deal, first of all, they won't trigger it. Second of all, they can abrogate it. Third of all, they can categorically flip back to Taiwan and it's and it's a moot issue. Now they flip back to Taiwan, they're going to need some backing on it. As mentioned before, you'll need to put in a bunch of things in place to protect them because this is a huge slap in the face to Xi Jinping. Um, but you know, they this is it. This is the this is what happens at the front line, right? This is like Galwan in India. You know, the the this PLA pushed, they killed some Indians, the Indians pushed back even harder, killed even more PLA. And that front has kind of, the, the CCP has changed its approach. They're not doing that. So this is, an, this is China going, oh yeah, what are you going to do about it? And now we need to help the people of the Solomon show what they're going to do about it. Because if you don't, if you don't push back on this, you're going to see the same sort of thing in Kiribati and uh, a whole bunch of other Pacific Island countries. So you mentioned this idea that the Solomon Islands could switch diplomatic recognition back from the PRC to Taiwan. Um, over the last few decades, we've had a lot of countries switching from Taiwan to China. Now that I think there's only about a dozen or so left that still recognize Taiwan. But I don't think any country has ever switched back when a country switches diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to the PRC, Taiwan does not punish them, right? Or they don't like send troops or do anything like that. But like, what would happen if a country, especially a small country like the Solomon Islands is like, goes back on that, um, th that would seem to be a very brave move and potentially risky. It is. There are few countries in the Pacific who have done. I mean, it was it was a while ago, but uh, Kiribati uh, recognized China. China set up a tracking station that was monitoring U.S. activity. They switched to Taiwan, shut it and, and shut it down. The difference between Taiwan and China also is that when China gets shut down, 
um, they tend to leave their people in the country to try to continue to exert influence and uh, figure out where the leverage points are and then find opposition parties that they can back to bring down the government. They don't, it doesn't stop. It's an ongoing political warfare thing. Um, whereas Taiwan tends to kind of pack its bags and go home with its tail between its legs. I think it's a mistake um, for many reasons. But there, there are examples that it was Kira's Naru also flipped back and forth a few times. It, 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 it ha- this is a while ago, but it has happened. Uh, and in, in fact, the Pacific Islands, because they're, some of them are quite small and their economies are relatively small, they don't necessarily get so indebted to or economically uh, engaged with um, China in a way that some larger countries do. So deparasiting the uh, Chinese economic uh, engagement in those countries is actually easier to do in many cases. And again, it goes back to this this kind of core identity thing. People don't switch to Taiwan. Sudani doesn't switch to Taiwan because it's the opposite of China. He His identity comes from being somebody who who's a person of you know faith, freedom, family, all those things that we've talked about before. And if you're somebody like that, then you want closer engagement with countries that are like that, including the U.S. And Taiwan is one of the countries that is like that. So just sort of saying this is just a, a, a Taiwan-China thing or a, a U.S.-China thing really undervalues the importance of these core uh, identity and cultural issues to the people of the region who are making these decisions. It's about themselves and how they see them themselves fitting into their community and what they want for their community. Um, so I, I, I think it can happen, but as mentioned, I think it, it needs to be, they will, like you said, Matt, they'll, they'll get hit bad. Uh, and especially because this is so high profile, uh, but if if they're protected, uh, it won't actually take much to protect them from it again because they're small. But if we don't do it, this is this is the front line. If China goes, what are you going to do about it? And the people of the Solomons aren't allowed to fight back in a way that gives them independence from the CCP, then it, you know, it, what are we going to do about it? Nothing. And then what happens? Next one, next one, next one. So what do you think will happen if if China does get the Solomon Islands? So uh, I'm very concerned about this uh, disintegration into violence, and uh, which allows for the opening of increased authoritarianism, which pulls them out of the orbit uh, and is, is horrific for the people of the Solomons who've already gone through a civil war. And then you start to see all the things you would normally see when China comes in. People get kicked off their land. There's uh, a rapacious uh, approach to extracting resources. Um, Families get ripped apart. Communities get ripped apart. Uh, There's increasing poverty and marginalization, which feeds into the violence cycle, which feeds into the authoritarianism cycle, which justifies the emplacement of more troops. Uh, which then creates a cover for buildup off the coast of Australia and New Zealand to, to interdict the supply chains. So in that context, you can see how the creation of violence within the Solomons actually, in multiple ways, 
benefits China strategically. Uh, and then from there, they've got a jumping off point even more into PNG and into Vanuatu and maybe even into New Caledonia, which is you know, where the French have the independence issue. And the one that really isn't getting enough attention is Bougainville, uh, which is a, an area of PNG that is voted for independence at like 98%. Um, and it has a timeline for independence, but it's not being handled properly or at all by the PNG government. And so that's another area where you could create a schism. And they have a huge copper mine, which I'm sure the Chinese would love to get their hands on. So this this kind of uh, knotted ball of uh, violence, resource extraction, authoritarianism, and uh, blocking out of the ability to support strategically or kinetically um, has the potential to be expanding quite rapidly if the people of the region aren't given the tools they need to fight it off. Well, I think a lot of people might hear like, it's like China makes a military base in the Solomon Islands. So what? The U.S. has military bases all over the world. Is It's not like China is going to immediately launch an invasion of Australia or New Zealand. What's the big deal? Yeah, and and I'm glad I'm I'm glad you framed it like that because you get a lot of that, and you, and this is, in this is also, uh, this equip this equivalency of oh you know the U.S. and China, there there is at a societal level there there is no equivalency, and and not to say again, colonial period is really bad. The Australians and New Zealanders did. Uh, did really messed up things. Um, the uh, the Americans have done really messed up things. You can ask the Marshall Islands about sixty seven nuclear tests in and around their their country. You know, there's that's, but they were that that was wrong. That was wrong to do. So do we enable an even bigger wrong to happen now because uh, other countries did a wrong thing then? And the big the bigger wrong component of it is the way that uh, China engages has so many more depths of penetration into a society. So if you look at a a classic uh, Pacific Island country, there are multiple different sorts of of Chinese, ethnic Chinese. You'll have the old communities that have been there for very long, generations that are not part of this discussion. Uh, Then you'll have the, the business elites who, who are the elite capture front force? They're the guys that people who will go out and figure out who the key entry points are, political and economic, and buy them up and co-opt them. Then you'll have the, the local shopkeepers who are often in the country for maybe five to 10 years. And their goal is to extract as much money out of the economy as possible. And, they're, and they tend to not be liked uh, so in the case of Tonga, for example, when you had the explosion, the volcanic eruption and the tsunami, uh, it knocked out power, which meant the ATMs went dead. So people didn't have cash. And uh, I know of a case where somebody went to the, the local Chinese shop and they're all they're called Chinese shops. They're all 80 percent or 90 percent of the sector and, and needed some baby formula for their kid. And because they didn't have cash, uh, they were declined credit. And this is a shop that in their tiny little village, which they go to on a daily basis, 
And um, they'll never forget that. That family will never forget that that shop in their village where the people are only going to be there for five to seven years wouldn't help them during a tsunami, wouldn't help them at a time of crisis. So there's that. That never happened with the uh, Western colonial colonial engagements. And then there's the those um, laborers that move through the area, some of whom seem to be prisoners who are paying off their prison time. And they bring in uh, drugs, prostitution, gambling, facilitated in many cases by the retail shops and covered over politically in terms of prosecution by the elite, by the, that economic elite. So you were talking about a corruption, a societal corruption at a very deep level, levels of drug abuse and gambling, and which is already feeding into a society that's losing a lot of jobs because the Chinese are coming in with their own infrastructure projects and hiring their own people and, and taking over key pieces of property and kicking people off their land. So it's a, it's, it's a very um, integrated into the society method of breaking down uh, what are very, normally very tight social units. So this is something completely different. You know, the, the military base is kind of the visual or the big tip of the spear of, or top of the pyramid of that very wide engagement into these societies, which is disruptive on a scale that we haven't seen, uh, with the exception of maybe missionaries, uh, at a at a very uh, disruptive level. And the and the which is why people like Daniel Sudani and many others are very concerned about this engagement. It's not about the base for them, although the base is a real problem. It's about what it's doing to their communities and their societies. It's almost like um, when the Chinese Communist Party starts to, when when you start opening engagement to them, it's like the, this small little cancer cell that comes in and it starts to grow, and it you know, and at that that ground level, like you said, you know, you're seeing the the gambling and the prostitution, and you know, Shelley, you saw this in Italy. Uh, that that town that the Chinese um, yeah I was mean taking over technically prostitution was is legal in Italy but um, it seemed pretty clear that there was trafficking going on of young Chinese women um, into this town called Prado in Italy that had a lot of um, Chinese sweatshops um, underground labor you could see the entire there's a new downtown area that's all Chinese. Um, but there, there was, there, gambling as there well. was like a lot of, um, and the Italian police were having trouble kind of busting the criminal gangs that were working in the area. And that's Italy, right? Like they're a developed country with lots of resources. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's really worth pointing out that these are patterns that replicate. So one of the reasons why I started looking at the Pacific Islands to begin with, because the societies are so small that you can see these mechanisms at play and then you can look to see whether they scale and whether, they, whether they're consistent. So um, for example, in the case of Tonga, there's a, little, there's a Chinese clinic right outside the entrance to their military barracks. And <laughs> it's, it's run by a woman. The problem is they've sent so many Tongans to China now to speak, to learn how to speak Chinese. And the, and the, the Chinese think that if they speak Chinese, nobody will understand them if they're in Tonga. So, but you've got like the shop guy out back who speaks very good Chinese and can overhear what the shopkeeper is saying. And uh, apparently she's former PLA. 
and is talking about their ability to shut down the economy. You know, and so the Tongan guy, stockkeeper in the back is like, oh, this is a problem. And so he goes and he tells his friends. But in the case of Tonga, because Australia and New Zealand want to want to retain control over these countries. And part of it is they want to show Washington how important they are. And so in the, in the, it's a long story, but the short version is uh, New Zealand and Australia signed this policing agreement with Tonga, which forced Tonga to take New Zealand police commissioners. So the New Zealand, in, in the, the head of the police in Tonga is a New Zealander, has been. I mean, they, they, some, I think one might have been Australian, but I think that actually they've all been New Zealand. And doesn't speak Tongan. And so it's broken the reporting. There's very little trust. The police officers don't want to report to a colonial white guy who is fundamentally serving Wellington, not serving their capital. So even though the stock guy might have this intel about what's going on on the ground, it might not make its way up through the intelligence reporting chain to a Tongan police chief who could then disseminate it through his government and create some sort of um, actionable uh, counter to it. Um, anyway, quick jumping back to the that location. So we identified that location opposite the entrance of the barracks. So then that gave us an idea, okay, well, is that something that Chinese try to do when they come in economically? Do they try to set up shops or massage parlors or whatever in strategic locations so that they can gather information on troop movements or in the case of a clinic or a massage parlor or prostitution, uh, get material for blackmail or extortion or uh, influence operations. And so looking at small countries like Tonga uh, gives you some clues to what to look for elsewhere. And in fact, yes, that was the case. Um, and, and, and this, this problem with this putting in of Australia and New Zealand barriers to the flow of information, uh, is, is a real problem. And the, and it's what we saw in the Solomons where the leader of the opposition tried to say, they've been telling, they've been telling us this deal is on the book since 2020. Um, others, Peter Kenilaria said, this is going to lead to violence. But you've got that that layer of blockage, which is bureaucratic. So you've got the police involved there, but it's also academic, where uh, certain academics in Australia and New Zealand have a narrative about their engagement in the islands that that blocks research in certain areas. So if you're a, a Pacific Islander who's going to study Pacific Island security in Australia or New Zealand, and you hit one of these teachers, you're not going to be able to do research about why China is a real problem for your country, because their narrative is, as you're saying, Chris, oh, you know, what's the difference between Australia and China or US and China? They're all bad anyway. So there are all these blockages of information flows that make it so that the people of the country who actually understand the situation aren't getting their message out to the wider world, um, uh, including, you know, you know, India or Japan or the Philippines or all these other engagement points, uh, which could be helpful for them in fighting the same fight that, that they're fighting. 
What about within the Pacific Islands? I mean, are other Pacific Island nations looking at the Solomons and saying, we want that or we don't want that? Like, how how is this related to China's larger plan in the Pacific? That's, that's a great question. Um, one of the first national level leaders to, to come out uh, and ask Sugavari to reconsider this was the president of the Federated States of Micronesia, uh, President Panuelo, who, who is from a country that actually recognizes China and uh, has, has BRI, but he was telling um, Sogavari, you may, you may want to rethink this. And that's actually it's an incredibly important point. You know, a lot of the discussion is about, you know, what are these, all of these big countries going to do? But the, the real solutions are ground up and regional. And so we've been talking mostly now about the southern part of the Pacific, but the, the strategic front line, if you're going to grab Taiwan, is actually the northern part of the Pacific. So these are the air, this is where Guam is, Northern Marianas, but this is also where you have the three U.S. freely associated states, Palau, uh, Micronesia, and the Marshalls. And these are countries that have unique engagement with the U.S. They're very, very deep. Um, and the U.S. is actually responsible for their defense. Um, and they now they're kind of structurally being forced to engage with the U.S. through the in part through the Pacific Island Forum, which is in Fiji, which takes them days to get there. They don't really want to go. It doesn't represent their interests. They're very different in the south than in the north. Um, but the State Department, for whatever reason, is putting a lot of pressure on them to stay in the Pacific Island Forum, even though they've asked to leave. Um, but if they, when they get together themselves, those countries plus uh, two others, it, it enables them to talk to each other specifically about these issues because these issues are similar across the region. Overfishing, Chinese organized crime, um, you know, a lot of crypto stuff is going on. A lot of digital, very odd digital stuff is going on as a as a front or a modern version of Chinese gambling in the region. Um, then they can help each other find solutions. So again, getting out of the way and facilitating them to talk to each other and sort out their own uh, human security interests with the understanding that they don't want the sort of engagement China is offering either is, I think, probably the most viable way forward. I feel like the U.S. State Department might consider rethinking this because if they don't start giving these nations what they want, they're going to start leaning towards China in, in different ways, right? I mean, like, it just seems kind of short-sighted. So, so when we talk about these countries, uh, it's worth disaggregating. So there, what it does is it gives, these, these are democracies, certain political leaders a reason to say the deal that the relationship with the U S or the West is working. So that, so this happened in the recent election of Palau, you had four candidates for uh, president in Palau. One of them saw, was willing to sign a, a lousy agreement with the U S one of them wanted an agreement with the U S but wanted a better agreement with the U S and two of them were pro China. If the guy who was willing to do a lousy agreement had actually won, that would have given more leverage to the two guys who are pro China. 
because the the deal would have happened, but it would have been a deal that was domestically unpopular. So it gives leverage to the two Chinese guys. Luckily, the guy who won was the guy who wants a relationship with the with the U.S. President Whips, who grew up in Baltimore, as it happens, and uh, but he wants a better deal. So as you said, Matt, you know if you give if you give them the right deal, then politically they're they've closed those political warfare, informational warfare doors to the Chinese side that are trying to use the leverage, that leverage to create the fragmentation in the society that might give them an advantage. Well, I think, Matt, it's touching on a very interesting point that, uh, you know, how the U.S. responds to these nations is largely dependent on how the average American views these countries. And, you know, someone might say like, oh, like I get that what China does in these countries is horrible, but I can't afford gas. Why should I care what happens in these specific nations? Yeah. So it's not all about money, uh, but if it, if it were about money, then there are things that can be done to help the Pacific Islands become much more financially independent and obviate a lot of these issues. One of the main one is around fisheries. A lot of, you know, these are very fish rich countries, uh, tongue twister, I managed to avoid. And, uh, it, you know, if they're given, but, but basically they're making money off of the licenses, they give licenses and get very sh- small amounts of money off of that. But if they're given the capacity to process the fish on shore, then that gives, you know, much more employment and, and, and creates a whole sector of jobs, fisheries management, technicians, scientists, uh, aquaculture, that that then gives them uh, a lot more independence. So it, it doesn't have to just be economic. But even with that, there's uh, enormous bipartisan support in Congress, especially for the, for the whole Pacific. There have been several congressional uh, hearings on it recently. And there's a high awareness of the sacrifices that the people of the region made uh, during World War II, but also the, the three freely associated states. They have a very high proportion of people who serve in the U.S. military, m- more so than most U.S. states. And there's, there's a lot of back and forth, and the ties are very deep. And as a result, huge bipartisan support in Congress for uh, the Pacific Islands in general, specifically for the freely associated states. There have been over half a dozen bipartisan letters to Congress during this administration alone asking for a resolution of some of these outstanding issues. And this, this administration has been responding. They recently appointed a negotiator, presidential level of negotiator for the compacts of free association, which are up for renewal. Um, they've announced the opening of a new embassy in the Solomon Islands. And I think there might be more announcements along those lines. So it, the, the U.S. is starting to catch up. What happened was at the end of the Cold War, there was a real pulling back. And some of the structural responses are still in that mindset. So in that way, this agreement between the Solomons and China or between Sogavari and China has shocked the system and so the system is devoting more resources to figuring out how to, what to do about it. And if the right mechanisms are put in place, then it could be, in fact, very, very helpful in the long run. Well, I'm glad to hear that Congress has been 
you know, has bipartisan support on this. But again, this is still an issue of like, you know, this this past week, everyone was talking about Will Smith slapping Chris Rock. How do, how do you get them to care about the Pacific? Send Will Smith to the Federated States of Micronesia. Have him slap Xi Jinping. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. The CCP can't help itself in terms of overreach, right? And it, you know, it, it, it helps trigger these other responses. So we're, the, the first barrier to break through was actually, the, the, in the case of the Solomons, the barrier in Canberra in uh, in australia because they they really hadn't been taking it seriously and the u.s was relying on them and now we all know it doesn't work what they're doing isn't working and so just in the last few weeks you've seen the dynamic changing substantially and again this goes back to what do you have to do about it so you like the the they finally had the leader of the solomon islands opposition on sky news uh in australia and on Sky News, he talked about what was going on in terms of his relationship with the Australian High Commissioner. So there, this is similar to what Australia did, actually, uh, to try to clean China out of its own system, where the intelligence community started leaking stuff to the press. And it became much more difficult, if not untenable, to be on the take from China uh, in Australia because you might get called out and have your career destroyed. So as they're starting to call call out what's going on within the system, the Australian media is allowing the Solomon Islanders to speak directly to the larger Australian system. Some of these walls are starting to crack and um, giving opening up for, for more options. And now, now we'll see what their response is. But the Solomon situation has catalyzed Japan, for example, and India, the Quad partners, because this is these are countries that are fundamental for a free and open Indo-Pacific. So it affects India, it affects Japan, um, and that that pressure coming from those other sides, if you know, it affects South Korea um, on on Washington and on the strategic community means more resources for analysis, but it also means a whole different set of people are being brought in for the analysis, which might broaden the palette of responses. Uh, that could be brought to bear. So, you know, it, we're at, a, we're at a, a kind of a point where things could continue on a lackadaisical, dangerous direction. Um, they could get much worse or they could actually get much better now. So um, I'm grateful to you and to the listeners for listening to me ramble on, uh, because this is, a, I think, probably a very dynamic and important area uh, and the new front line for China, which needs to be discussed and addressed and countered. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Cleo, to talk about these issues and help raise the awareness. Because as as you said, there's been a real lack of good reporting on this situation in the media. There's not a lot of good information. People need to know about it. Well, actually, so there's some pretty good information being reported in that. So I, I normally say read the Indian media. Now I can tell you, you know, go read the Solomon Islands media or <laughs> go read the Tongue media, you know. But uh, as with as with India, it, some of the best reporting is is happening in local languages. So that could be a little bit of an impediment. But um, that's where the stories are being broken. And and I'm very grateful to my colleagues in the media in the Pacific Islands for uh, the reporting that they're doing because it's it's essential 
for entire Indo-Pacific security at the moment. How would you like to go to the Pacific Islands, Chris? I'm already there. <laughs> well, yeah, thanks again for joining us, Cleo. Uh, it's, it's always fascinating uh, what, what you bring to the show. So th- thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. And uh, I'll, I'll change back to what I was wearing before and drop this fake bat drop. And uh, it's very realistic looking, uh, yeah. you know, especially the radiator. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm staying, at a, I'm staying at a friend's house and they've got this like polo poster on the wall. You see, I've, I've, never, oh. I've never seen them have anything to do with polo. <laughs> no idea where, where it came from. So, I, you know, when you stay at a friend's house and you're like, why do you have that on the on the wall? I don't quite understand, but uh, I think the answer is your answer, which is just the the fake brick wallpaper and carry it with me, and that I won't have those issues. Hey, we we never said this was fake. <laughs> we just didn't say it was real. <laughs> it's it's real brick wallpaper. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks again, Cleo. Thanks a lot. Okay, bye. Yeah, it's really great to be able to have someone as knowledgeable as Cleo on and talk about these very important issues that just a lot of people don't know about. So I would really encourage anyone watching to, you know, please share what you've learned with your friends and family because this is important and not a lot, not enough people are talking about it. Suddenly bring up the Solomon Islands during dinner. Yeah, or with uh, somebody on the subway. Yeah. <laughs> with somebody on the subway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that would me, require sir, talking I, with someone on uh, the subway. Have you heard about I, the Solomon, Solomon Islands? Islands. <laughs> well, so I like your idea, Chris, about sending a celebrity to these Pacific Islands, and then there'll be some I, kind of media coverage. I think I said that, but okay. No, I Shelly, I, I like your suggestion. That was definitely your original idea. Incorrect. Totally not Shelly's. I said send Will Smith there so we could slap Xi Jinping. Oh, no, and you then said, you made it. You said I said send Will Smith to the Federated States of Micronesia. Hold on, guys, this is very important. As to you this said out. something about having Will Smith slap Xi Jinping. Mm-hmm. Right, Xi Jinping is not in the. The South point Pacific. is to get, well, his influence is. No. The point is to get celebrities involved. Yes, so, so you the can point somehow is, no, listen, guys, get Will Smith to slap Xi Jinping's influence. Yeah. That's what I meant. Everyone got that except for okay. you, Shelley. No, listen, here's here's the idea, which, by the way, is my original idea. I don't know why you guys are even talking about okay. this. My idea is to send celebrities to these islands, and then there will be media coverage because they are celebrities. And what's, what wealthy, successful people do is inherently more important than what we do. And uh, therefore, there will be coverage. So yeah. you're saying we should send Chris to... I'm not a wealthy celebrity by any stretch of the imagination. Well, you're a celebrity by some small stretch of the imagination. Yeah, I'm a YouTuber. Well, YouTubers are the new something, something. I don't know. That's that's true. I mean, you know, before Hollywood, celebrities wouldn't have been a thing, really. Um, Yeah, they didn't even have the tubes back then. Okay, but how are we going to get celebrities to the South Pacific? Well, I mean, Hollywood is known for standing up to the Chinese Communist Party. No, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can get the NBA players to also speak <laughs> up. <laughs> Maybe a former NBA player. Ah, uh, Ennis Cantor. Freedom. freedom. <laughs> well, okay, so we've got plan A, which is just randomly bring up the Solomon Islands to people on the New York subway, and plan B, which is to send celebrities there. Bring it up to people in a variety of circumstances. It doesn't have to be just the subways. I mean, that wouldn't make sense in places 
parts of the country without. Yeah, in L.A., you just have to, what, shout to people in traffic? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's perfect. You know, you're stuck in traffic. Roll down your window. Is Back in the days when your you car had to roll a, yeah. down the window, shout over, hey, did you know, did you hear about the Solomon Islands? What? <laughs> the Solomon Islands. It's, uh, it's amazing to me that we have 1.74 million subscribers on YouTube. Not on this channel. <laughs> <laughs> That's also true. <laughs> uh, and thank you for watching and subscribing to China Unscripted. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelly John. And I'm Matt Ganesta. We'll talk to you next time on this very important good show. Shelly. <laughs>